3: This is the John Fuglesang Podcast. This is SiriusXM Progress. I'm John Fuglesang. Welcome to Channel 127, Progress After Dark. For the next three hours, we'll be coming at you at 866-997-4748. That number again is 866-997-GRIT. Write it down. We want to hear from you guys all night. There's a lot to talk about. There's a lot that's not funny at all. And more than a little bit stateside that's frankly hilarious, uh, if it doesn't make you cry. I'm John saying So glad to be with you in New York. Thea Harper and I are broadcasting from the uh, Howard Stern Towers high above Gotham. And only Thea Harper and I. It is empty here. It is empty. Empty here. And it's great to uh, be back in New York. I want to thank everyone who came out for the big show in L.A. this last weekend. I, I got to thank everyone, in, period. But I'll get to that in a second. It's been a crazy news cycle and already today has just been nonstop. Detroit police say... The murder of a synagogue president there shows no signs yet of deliberate anti-Semitic or hate-based motivation. Uh, There's now nine Republicans in the running for House Speaker after Jim Jordan was voted out as the nominee. Travis King, he's the U.S. soldier who was returned to the States after he wandered into North Korea. He just got charged with desertion and a few other crimes, including uh, assaulting officers and possessing sexual images of a child. Dude, you may have been better off with Kim Jong Un. We have quite a show tonight. Professor Joshua Rothman is going to be with us. He has written one of the most powerful books about slavery and the slave business that you will ever encounter. I'm really thrilled to have him. Also joining us will be uh, the great Rhonda Hansen for some laughs an hour, too. And then, um, so let me thank everyone who came out for the big show at the Saban Theater two nights ago haven't really slept much since then, but I'm pretty sure it was only two nights ago. Uh, Stephanie Miller, Hal Sparks, and Frangela were all great. They really raised the bar. I, I am really glad I was able to bring uh, a lot of new material, considering I don't have a lot of free time at night to go work it out in clubs. But um, what a house. Also, thanks to um, Ron Perlman, who was a, a great guest on stage with us, a, a, a film legend to me, and uh, one of the most articulate and passionate spokespeople about the strike. We also had Malcolm Nance. Join us on stage, which I was thrilled about. He's going to come back on the show very soon. Glenn Kirshner as well. I want to thank uh, our my producers, Chris Houseelt and Thea Harper, who uh, were so wonderful in working around my crazy schedule and doing the show out of L.A. for six nights. Thank you both. It was really nice to get out of New York City and go off and do a show elsewhere, because then I get to meet people who listen to our show. Knowing one in New York has cars. So we got to meet so many people at the show and at the meet and greet. Theo, you have a lot of fans. Uh, it's not just the creepy guys who call up and breathe heavy on the phone. <laughs> do I you have a lot you and Chris both people loved you guys like like everyone was walking up to me and them because we do these meet and greets afterwards mm-hmm. for the folks who pay a little extra and then we we stay until midnight and we post for a lot of out of focus selfies on phones <laughs> oh my god so many people I love thea I love Chris have them on the air more have them talk more oh like you're you have fans out there it was really well, really nice
0: thank you guys.
3: Thank you all. Thank you guys for coming. And thank you to everyone at SiriusXM Los Angeles. It's a great studio. It's really fun to broadcast from there, especially because um, the sun is still out and I can see it sometimes. And I want to thank all of our listeners who uh, who came to the show or who watched on the pay-per-view. If you haven't seen it, man, it's really worth it. The guy who owns this show, who's trying to kill me for the insurance money, he was trying to get me to do this this poem, this Dr. Seuss poem I wrote explaining all of Donald Trump's trials, all seven of them. And I kept saying, no, man, it's too long. It's too intricate. It's it's I'm going to lose the audience. It's not a stand up bit. I've never done it in public. I'm not going to go do it for thousands of people. The first time I ever do it in in, in an open space, I told the technical directors at the theater. I told the uh, the TV directors and the crew we had there. I'm like, look, if this poem doesn't work with the slideshow we have planned, I, I, I'm fine not doing it. I, I have I have a lot of material. I want to do stand up. But the guy who owns the show made me do the Dr. Seuss poem. And I'm so glad he twisted my arm. It was uh, really a riot. And the crowd response was fantastic. You can still see the whole thing. It is available as a download. Go to sexyliberal.com or meathook.live and you'll learn all about it. It was really fun to do a brand... A brand new bit I've never done in front of an audience. And let's just do it on TV while we're at it. Um, We have San Francisco coming up. Next year, it's going to be a real tour. There's two dates announced so far. San Francisco on January 20th of 2024. That show is going to be a party. We might have some very special guests to announce soon. Also, the weekend before the DNC in Chicago. This is going to be crazy. August 17th of 2024. Those shows are already on sale. You do not want to miss the political tour of the year, especially after the political comedy party we just had. And new dates will be added uh, for sale this week on that tour. Also, uh, Friday, November 3rd, that's not long from now. I'm going to be performing up in the Berkshires at Lionsgate Comedy in Stockbridge, Massachusetts with our friend Kevin Bartini. This just kind of happened. I'll be playing up there. And uh, and I'm also doing the Napa Comedy Festival, I think, in March. So a lot of things. On, I'm going to be on the road a lot next year. I'd love to see y'all in person. In the meantime, today in the news, where do we begin? The New York Times published a kind of a mea culpa admitting that they relied too heavily on Hamas's claims as the bombing of Gaza began about the terror attack in southern Israel. Um, Trump, he, he claimed he never boasted about state secrets to that Australian billionaire during his presidency. Uh, this is the billionaire going on 60 Minutes in Australia telling exactly what he said. The UAW has added a Stellantis factory to their strike against the Detroit Three. That's big news. And a new Suffolk University USA Today national poll finds Joe Biden and Donald Trump tied at 37 percent each in a four-way race. This is where we're at, folks. I refuse to get nervous about these polls a year out before the election, but Robert Kennedy Jr. polls 13 percent from Trump and Cornel West takes four percent from Biden. There'll be a lot to talk about. I do not think these numbers will look like this next year. We'll see. In the meantime, can we get can we get our, our, our Donald Trump crime theme going? Let's do the crime report. Sidney Powell reached a deal with Fulton County prosecutors last Thursday agreeing to cooperate with the investigation in exchange for a six-year probation sentence, a $6,000 fine, and a written apology to Georgia residents. Following this, Trump attorney Kenneth Chesbro pled guilty to one felony count of conspiracy to file false documents. This now makes it a lot harder. After Kenneth Chesbro took a plea deal in Georgia, now the third person to plead guilty in that case— For Donald Trump to use his defense of counsel, advice of counsel defense. Both of his lawyers are now gonna rat him out. They're gonna sell you out, they're gonna sell you all out. And Donald Trump is still pushing lies about the stolen election while reacting to Sidney Powell's decision to accept a plea deal. Now, you know Sidney Powell, she lied and said George Soros and Venezuela were part of the election interference. She was Donald Trump's mouthpiece on Fox News and Newsmax and that other one. Well, in a Sunday morning post on Truth Central, Truth Social, uh, Donald Trump said that she was never his lawyer. Sidney Powell was one of millions and millions of people who thought and in ever increasing numbers still think correctly that the 2020 presidential election was rigged and stolen and our country is being absolutely destroyed because of it. Yes, he spelled the word stolen with two L's. Despite the fake news reports to the contrary, without even reaching out to ask the Trump campaign, Ms. Powell was not my attorney and never was. It took me about three minutes, brothers and sisters, to go on Twitter and find Donald Trump's posting from November 14th, 2020, I look forward to Mayor Giuliani spearheading the legal effort to defend our right to free and fair elections. Rudy Giuliani, Joe Gijanova, Victoria Tonsing, Sidney Powell, and Jenna Ellis. A truly great team added to our other wonderful lawyers and representatives. <laughs> Can't even keep his smears straight. Here's the funny part about Sidney Powell. Uh, So Donald Trump did this posting today saying she was never his attorney, even though she was his mouthpiece. But he said Ms. Powell did a valiant job of representing a very unfairly treated and governmentally abused General Mike Flynn. But to no avail, his prosecution, despite the facts, was ruthless. He was an innocent man, like many other innocent people who are now being persecuted by this now fascist government of ours. And I was honored to give him a full pardon. Okay, Donald Trump leaves out that he fired Michael Flynn. Michael Flynn has been fired by two different presidents, Barack Obama and Donald Trump. Michael Flynn was Donald Trump's national security advisor for 22 days before Donald Trump fired him. And he pled guilty to lying to the FBI in 2017. Yes, Trump did pardon him in November of 2020, weeks after Biden was declared the winner of the presidential election. And when Michael Flynn pled guilty in 2017, he said in court under oath, I recognize that the actions I acknowledged in court today were wrong, and through my faith in God, I am working to set things right. I accept full responsibility for my actions. He's the little pissant who's running around country, wiping his butt with his military service and uniform, lying for Donald Trump, and Donald Trump lies for him. Here's a quote from Donald Trump earlier today. They caught up with him and asked him how he felt about the House Speaker race. Give a a quick listen to this.
4: Something's going to happen. It'll be positive. It'll end up working well. I'm staying above it. I have to right now. But I've uh, spoken to just about all the candidates. and quite a few of them. And they're terrific people. You know, that fourth threshold is very tough. It's a very tough thing, no matter who it is. I said there's only one person that can do it all the way. You know who that is? Jesus Christ. (laughs) Jesus came down and said, I want to be Speaker. He would do it. Other than that, I haven't seen... I haven't seen anybody that can guarantee it. But at some point, I think we're going to, uh, we're going to have somebody pretty
3: soon. Uh, for the record, Jesus Christ would never be confirmed Speaker of the House by the Republicans. Did I say that? Ne- I mean, never. Every Republican would vote against a man who was anti-death penalty, but never once anti-abortion, who was anti-discrimination against trans or gay people, because uh, Jesus was very specific about how to treat each other. Someone who commanded you to pay your taxes someone who was against self-defense, and someone who commanded his followers to welcome the stranger. That guy wouldn't even be allowed on a tour of our Capitol. Now, in the House, it's uh, nine. Nine Republicans are now trying to get the job that Steve Scalise couldn't get, Jim Jordan couldn't get, and Kevin McCarthy couldn't keep. I keep saying this, but why would any Republican want to be Speaker of the House? The job is cursed for Republicans. Newt Gingrich, out in disgrace. Denny Hastert, oh, the longest serving one ever, and and left on his own terms, and then we found out he was, you know, a child molester for years. Paul Ryan, shoved out in disgrace. John Boehner, left in disgrace, and, well, McCarthy, you know all about it. As I said on stage the other night, it is the spinal tap drummer of government jobs. And Jim Jordan had three failed House votes, and two Failed internal private Republican votes. But you see, Jim Jordan has never acknowledged that Donald Trump actually lost the 2020 election. And that's why a lot of Republicans in the House, well, they're terrified because they don't want to sign on to this lie. But this far-right faction that operates as if Democrats have no rightful role in taking part in our governance, well, (laughs) they're the ones who are calling the shots. Only two of the nine Republicans who are running for speaker voted to certify Joe Biden's victory in 2020. The other seven all voted to throw out the will of the American voters. These guys don't seem to care. They are handing Democrats the advertising they need. Only Congressman Austin Scott from Georgia, and of course, Majority Whip Tom Emmer of Minnesota. Now, he's the number three House Republican in leadership. That's before McCarthy was kicked out. He's considered by most to be the next in line after Scalise stepped aside without even having a floor vote. He was the head of the House GOP's campaign committee during last year's midterms. So, you know, didn't go that well for him, but he's a very good fundraiser. And that's what they value. He also has relationships across the ideological factions. He, he voted in favor of protecting same-sex marriage. And he voted in favor of certifying the 2020 election, which might mean he can't ever be Speaker because he's not a liar, and he's not a bigot. Byron Donalds is going to run. Uh, right-wingers really like him. The fact that he has no experience is very attractive. Not as strong with fundraising, but he's already gotten a few endorsements from people. He's only been in Congress since 2021. Like, I've, I've, I've had stuff in my fridge since 2021. Um, and he has no fundraising infrastructure at all. And in 2000, he pled no contest to a felony bribery charge as part of a scheme to defraud a bank. His record was later sealed and expunged. So go ahead, please make him the guy. Oh, also, he was arrested for distribution of marijuana on a bribery charge uh, and on a bribery charge when he was younger. And of course, now he's all in favor of the drug war and doesn't support any kind of reform to our drug laws. He's owned up to the arrests, but um, according to a questionnaire he filled to be appointed to a board of trustees at a college, he said he'd never been arrested, charged or indicted in any local state or federal jurisdiction. So he's crooked, but he lies about it. And he lies just enough for the right-wing Republicans to like him. Uh, Here is Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez on MSNBC giving her thoughts on Byron Donalds, who again is one of nine Republicans trying to become your speaker.
1: You know, he's only served one term in the U.S. House of Representatives. He last thing that he did in an oversight committee was attempt to submit falsified evidence uh, to an impeachment hearing. I think it helps to know where all the bathrooms are before you run for the U.S. House of Representatives (laughs) personally and... I think uh, it helps to have some real experience in one of the most complex uh, legislative bodies in the world before you try to run it.
3: So again, Byron Donald's is popular in some, among some in MAGA land, but it's, it's really Tom Emmer, the majority Whip, who seems to be the natural frontrunner. But will he be able to do it? Donald Trump has been asked about this because he voted to certify that Joe Biden won the election, so which means he's not completely, cravenly, pathetically obedient to Donald Trump. So Trump allies are already. ...trying to stab him in the back and, and kill his campaign before it can even begin. Um, the uh, Washington Post reports that Donald Trump is not weighing in on it... ...but he has given the green light for his winged monkeys to attack Emmer. Uh, his team is working really hard to swat down suggestions that he's on a different page from Trump... ...but it could go either way. Again, Trump is going to try to pretend he's above the fray... ...but he has given the green light for the attacks to continue. It's going to be a mess, friends. Earlier today on XM POTUS, our friend Julie Mason... Interviewed former Texas Congressman Will Hurd, who was also in the race. He just dropped out. He didn't qualify with enough support to get to either of the debates. He said he thinks the only way the House Republicans can get a new speaker is, you know, with the help of those Democrats. The the only way I think we're going to
5: get out of this is if, you know, a Republican is able to get a handful of Democrats to vote for him on the floor. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if Tom Emmer is going to be able to pull it out tomorrow or Wednesday, whenever the vote is. Um, I came in at the same time as Tom. I think Tom's a Tom's a a, a good guy, um, but I don't think if, if Scalise couldn't pull it off, if Kevin couldn't Kevin McCarthy couldn't pull off, it's going to be difficult. And unfortunately, too many people think that bipartisanship is a four-letter word. It's not.
3: It's the only way we get big things done. These guys can't even do basic governance. I mean, they're in the majority of the House. And they can't put forward one nominee that all 217 can agree on. And we are now, friends, about three weeks away from another government shutdown. It's so ugly, people are starting to wonder, are they just doing this on purpose? To tank the government? It's going to be harder to blame it on Joe Biden. In the Middle East, and I sure wish we didn't have to talk about this because every day it seems to get more depressing. Israel has ramped up their bombing on three fronts now. In Gaza, southern Lebanon, and an airstrike in the West Bank. Airports in Syria and a mosque in the West Bank that was allegedly being used by militants. There's been bombing in areas where Palestinian civilians have been told to seek refuge. One new small aid shipment was allowed in to the Hamas-ruled territory. Relief workers said far more supplies were needed to address the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. There are reports of doctors performing surgery on burned children with zero anesthetic. And it's not going to make Israel safer. And it's not going to bring peace. And now everyone's terrified around the world of the war growing wider with Israel at launching airstrikes in Syria and Lebanon. It's getting more and more likely that we may see Iran get involved here. Two of the 212 hostages being held by Hamas were released back into Israel. Nareed Cooper and Yosheved Lifshitz are both Israeli. They were released citing their uh, their age and the humanitarian need of the individuals. The Red Cross confirmed it had assisted in this transfer. The U.S. is advising Israel to delay this ground offensive to allow more hostage releases. Ten Americans are still unaccounted for, and the U.S. believes a lot of those people are hostages. Barack Obama came out and said this is not about whether Israel has the right to retaliate against Hamas for the savage barbarism it inflicted on the Israeli men, women, babies, and grandparents. It certainly does. This is about doing it the right way, the way that does not play into the hands of of Hamas, Iran, and Russia. I'm sorry, that wasn't Barack Obama. That was Thomas Friedman. It's just so rare I actually agree with him. Uh, Barack Obama said, Israel has a right to defend its citizens against such wanton violence, and I fully support President Biden's call for the U.S. to support our longtime ally in going after Hamas, dismantling its military capabilities and facilitating the safe return of hundreds of hostages to their families. The Israeli government's decision to cut off food, water, and electricity to a captive civilian population threatens not only to worsen a growing humanitarian crisis, it could further harden Palestinian attitudes for generations, erode global support for Israel, play into the hands of Israel's enemies, and undermine long-term efforts to achieve peace and stability in the region. I'll say it again, folks. Criticizing Hamas doesn't mean you hate the Palestinian people or Muslims. And criticizing the Netanyahu regime doesn't mean you hate Israeli people or Jews. And criticizing the Trump regime doesn't mean you hate gullible people or Nazis. But you're allowed to. I want to remind you all the majority of liberal and moderate Christians, Jews and Muslims are getting along just fine across the world right now. We on this show will try to continue bringing the facts as we get them. We will not confirm facts if they are not confirmed by multiple sources and will remain on the side of anybody who's trying to bring peace, justice and security to all Israelis and all Palestinians without any more violence. That is my squad. A quick break, and we'll be back in just a minute with one of the most powerful books you will ever hear about, Joshua Rothman, and the book, The Ledger and the Chain, How Domestic Slave Traders Shaped America. This is one of those books that people don't want to look at, and they have to. It's one of the most powerful books I have ever read about American history. We'll be right back.
1: Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills.
6: Freaker, or wherever you get your podcast on, because you know I love it when you do.
3: This is Sirius XM Progress. I'm John Fuglesang. In 1808... The United States made the famous decision to outlaw the foreign slave trade. This was in no way done for moral reasons. It just opened the doors for a domestic slave trade, which is also to say the domestic slave breeding industry. Three of the most successful capitalists in the repulsive evil of the domestic slave trade were Isaac Franklin, John Armfield and Rice Ballard, who built the largest and most powerful slave trading operation in American history. History. Joshua D. Rothman is Professor of History and Chair of the Department of History at the University of Alabama. He's the author of two prize-winning books, Flush Times and Fever Dreams and Notorious in the Neighborhood. His essential, essential new book is The Ledger and the Chain, How Domestic Slave Traders Shaped America. It is the story of the domestic slave trade that built this nation and its economy. And Professor Rothman examines these very rich and at the time widely respected businessmen and their company that sat at the center of capital flowing from the brutal murderous plantations to the comfortably pleased northeastern banks. These men were respectable. They were the successful faces of genocide and generations of atrocities. This book is more powerful than most books you will ever read about slavery, and it is essential to understanding our country's history, the history of our economy, and the stain on America's soul that has yet to be reckoned with. It is a great pleasure to welcome Professor Rothman to SiriusXM.
7: Thank you. Thank you for having me on, and thanks for saying such kind of things about the book.
3: Uh, the book is so powerful, sir. My father was a history teacher, and if he were alive now, I would be buying a copy for him. You have immersed yourself in the kind of history that people don't want taught in this century. This is the kind of history that generations have turned away from having to reckon with and tried to hide. I, I can't even imagine, sir, the process of living with these men in your head, and I commend your, your prose as much as your history. Uh, people often wonder, how did white Southern people live with the fact that their whole culture rested on these brutal foundations? And and there really was this commonly held myth in the 1800s about slave traders, weren't they? That the, the genteel people of the South saw slave traders as, as lowly and would never socialize with them outside of having some, some necessary business. Your book really made me feel like this was an idea white Southerners told to, to lie to themselves, didn't they?
7: Yeah, they really did. Uh, that is a—it's uh, a long-standing myth about the slave trade and slave traders that white Southerners really offered, starting before the Civil War, and then continued it after the Civil War. Even after slavery was over, this was still part of the story they told about slavery. They said that. Trading in enslaved people was something they didn't like to do. It was something that didn't happen that often. It only happened in the worst cases of debt and other emergencies. Um, The real villains in the story were slave traders who carried out the violence, who separated families and on and on and on. But really, it doesn't take very long to look at the historical record and discover that none of those things are true. And and look, the reality is every slaveholder was a slave trader at some point or another. For everybody who purchases a slave is also somebody who sells a slave. Correct. And so the market doesn't exist without the very slaveholders who like to pretend that it didn't.
3: And we still live with this compulsory need to lie to ourselves about it. I mean, from, from the state's rights arguments, I remember as a child reading a biography of Robert E. Lee that talked about how much he hated slavery, but was just so loyal to Virginia. There was a virtue there. This is a, just so many clear indications that these people knew that they were despicable. And these three ambitious men that you document really transformed this system of slavery this 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 crude monstrosity into this industrial vertically integrated economy how did these men get into the business sir of selling other human beings
7: well uh, they came to it from sort of three different directions really Uh, Isaac Franklin came to it because he and his family lived out on the what was then the the frontier in Tennessee and they were traders and farmers and all sorts of things. And his older brothers dealt parts of the time in enslaved people. And he sort of got into the business that way. And he liked it. Uh he stuck with it. Uh John Armfield got into the business because he grew up the son of a kind of medium-sized farmer, a small slaveholder. He never wanted to do that. He never liked farming. He never wanted to go into that. Um, He started off running a small mercantile business and then realized he could make more money in the slave trade. Rice Ballard got recruited into it. Uh, He had a mentor who had, who was a very rich man who had a lot of money sitting around and just needed to put it to work. Um, Rice Ballard was sort of a young man from a family he knew. So he said, Hey, you know, if I, if I hook you up, if I front you the money, Will you see if you can make something by dealing in slaves? And so all three of them kind of come to it in different ways. But the long and the short of it is they saw it as a good way to make money. Uh, They lived in a country and particularly in a part of the country that said this was an okay thing to do. It was legal. It was profitable. Uh, They got into the business at a particularly good time to do it. The Deep South was expanding. The cotton economy was expanding. And really, they stuck with it because they never saw any reason not to.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I learned so much. You, you document how in the upper southern states, the land was getting harder to work after so many decades of tobacco cultivation. And so these men were the ones who really geared the business towards selling human beings further south, where cotton and sugar production was really beginning to boom.
7: Yeah, it really is sort of the, the perfect storm for uh, slave traders to make a profit and for the absolute misery of enslaved people themselves. Uh, You know, the tobacco economy had been in decline in Virginia for a long time. Farmers there turned to growing grain crops instead, which were much less labor intensive. So they find themselves with far more enslaved people than they knew what to do with profitably. So you have a supply at the Upper South End and you have uh, white farmers who are flooding into places like Alabama and Mississippi and Louisiana to grow cotton, um, who simply can't provide the number of enslaved laborers themselves that the demand calls for. And so slave traders really step in and become the middlemen who are bringing people from point A to point B and making their money on the difference.
3: And they really were very innovative for the monsters they were. Uh, They were the first slave trading company in America to buy and set up their own ships to take captives from the Upper South down to markets in Mississippi and Louisiana.
7: Yeah. So we usually, to the extent people think of the domestic slave trade at all, um, and a lot of people really don't think much about it. Uh, But to the extent they think about it at all, they think about the Koffel system, right? People being marched over land in in these sort of long lines and handcuffs and chains. And that certainly was probably the most common way people encountered the domestic slave trade. That's where people would see it all the time. But Franklin and Armfield, um, they are moving people in larger numbers and in much more regular supplies than moving people over land could manage. It simply took too long. And so to move people more quickly and to move them in greater volume and frankly, with less risk of people becoming exhausted and dying, um, they purchased their own ships. Uh, They have three ships at their peak, and they are sending people from uh, Alexandria, Virginia, um, just across the Potomac from D.C., and they are shipping them to New Orleans um, twice a month. Every two weeks was at their peak. Armfield is sending a shipload of people out. Um, Isaac Franklin or his nephew is receiving the ship in New Orleans. Uh, Some of the people they're selling right there in New Orleans, which was the largest slave trading port um, in the in the United States. Mm -hmm. And the rest of them, they're sending up the Mississippi River to Natchez, Mississippi, uh, which was really sort of the core of their their operations in the deep south.
3: This this just reads like a a red, white and blue horror show. Can you explain to our listeners? How these men came up with this innovative idea of renovating urban facilities that that would combine huge jails with attractive mansions to, to pen people so they could be sold.
7: Yeah. So what's interesting, one of the interesting things about Franklin and Armfield is that the tactics that they use were things that sort of other slave traders had kind of played around with in the years before they got into the business. Right. They're not the first one to send people domestically by ship. They are not the first people to engage in um you know, uh, really get engaged with the banking system. They're not the first people to establish their own headquarters in a city. What they're really good at doing is sort of taking other people's ideas, pulling them all together, putting them together with an enormous amount of money, upping the scale of everything that everybody had done before. And really, the key to upscaling their operation was their engagement with the credit system. Um, most slave traders deal in cash. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They pay in cash and they want to make cash sales because they don't want to bother with collecting debts. Right. But well, what Franklin and Arnfield decide to do is they figure, well, if we can borrow a lot of money from banks and then we can sell people on credit, we can have a constant sort of influx of cash coming in. There's cash coming in from the banks. There's cash coming in from their customers. It required a lot of collections, but it enables them to scale up their operation well beyond anything any other slave traders had ever accomplished before.
3: Well, you also talk about how Franklin Armfield and Ballard um, had built up what you call an enormous operation, still nimble enough to adjust to abrupt market shifts. What do we mean when we talk about abrupt market shifts in the context of the domestic slave trade? Would this be like the the Nat Turner uprising or or, or the cholera epidemic of 1832?
7: Yeah. So there could be particular events that could alter either the supply of enslaved people. It could alter the ways that enslaved people, um, they could alter prices. Of enslaved people. Mm -hmm. Um, Things like Nat Turner's rebellion could trigger states in the lower south to start passing laws against the slave trade. So if you had to move from one place and move into a different place, that alters the shape of the market. Uh, The harvests in cotton and sugar, depending what those look like and what the profits of that are like. So there really is a constant adjustment that they need to be making on the fly in order to keep up with everything that's changing with them. And it could be week to week, month to month.
3: I I have to, again, commend your your prose. You find a way to perfectly encapsulate this and, and make it even more devastating. You write, Their professional dominance came in part from their command of the intimate daily savageries of the slave trade. The exhilarating thrill of acting with impunity animated them, feeding a roguish swagger and bold ambitions. These three men really seemed to enjoy what they did to other human beings for their millions.
7: Yeah, that, that is probably the, the hardest part of trying to work on a book like this and sit with the material. And frankly, it's probably the hardest part for readers, uh, in my experience, is that they can get their heads around the idea that people would do very craven things for money. Uh, they can get their heads around the idea that morals go out the window sometimes when there's profit to be made. What's hard for people to get their head around is the kind of um, – the kind of cruelty that's involved in doing that and the capacity of men to seemingly enjoy that cruelty. Uh, what Franklin Armfield and Ballard liked about the slave trade was not simply the money that they made, it's the power that they felt, the ability to um, sort of have enslaved people do anything that they wanted them to. Uh, they could move them wherever they wanted. They could sell them to whoever they wanted. Uh, they could abuse them whenever they wanted. There there's a sadism there. People have said to me they, they think these men are sociopaths. I don't I don't really get into try to psychologize them. I think there's a way in which that's a little bit anachronistic. I agree. But I don't find it hard to agree with those conclusions. Um there's there's a deep twistedness um in there in the psychology of being a slave trader.
3: The most difficult part for me with your book was reading about what was called the fancy trade, the sexual slavery of the system of slavery. And one of my big takeaways was that it was a very deliberate component of the slave trade and actually a differently priced part of the slave trade, wasn't it?
7: It is, absolutely. Uh, so the, the 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 reference to young women as fancies um, was something that it's a term, and the 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 practice itself goes back, you know, obviously long before Franklin Armfield. It's a term that starts to come into play in the 1820s, and it referred to young women, often light skinned women, who were sold uh, for the idea that they could be sexually assaulted and raped. Some of this is about um, sort of satisfying the desires of white men. Some of it is obviously about uh, the power and domination Mm -hmm. that white men sought in slavery. Um, But even beyond the fancy trade, reproduction and coerced reproduction is essential to making American slavery work. Enslaved women are valuable not only for their physical labor, not only for household labor, but also because they are able to have reproductive labor. Um they are able to generate more enslaved people. And so that is something that is built into the market, it's built into slavery, it's built into the trade, and it is built into the pricing.
3: But aside from the slave breeding industry, which is what it was an industry, these these men
7: raped many women themselves, didn't they? They do. Yeah, they do. And what what's what's astonishing about that is not that they did it. None that none of that is surprising. You don't have to read very far into the history of American slavery before you realize that systemic rape is part of the system, what's surprising, I think, to many people is that they made no secret about it. Um, yeah. If you read the letters that survive among the three partners, they're bragging about these things as if they were some sort of sexual exploit that they managed to pull off. It's it's the and that that's where people really start to see the kind of the 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 sort of sadism. That I mentioned, um, it's the it's the, the the willingness to not only carry out the rapes of enslaved women, but to to brag to each other about it. It's a way, um, you know, they're they're rarely in the same place at the same time. So I actually saw that and describe it in the book. It's a way that they sort of bonded with each other. Um, it's a way that they sort of build their their friendship and their business relationship is through the abuse of enslaved women.
3: You actually introduced us to a number of these women whose stories I had never heard of before. And I wondered if you could briefly tell our listeners a bit about the letter that Miss Virginia Boyd wrote to Mr. Ballard.
7: Yeah. So that's a tough one. And it's a remarkable source. Um, So Virginia Boyd was a woman who had been purchased by uh, Rice Ballard's business partner. Um, After Rice Ballard gets out of the slave trade, he gets into business with uh, another man in Mississippi named Samuel Boyd. And uh, Virginia Boyd was a woman who Samuel Boyd um, sexually abused, assaulted, had numerous children with, um, and then got to a point where he decided he didn't want to deal with her anymore. Um, So he sent her over to Rice Ballard, one of Rice Ballard's plantations, and says, look, you got to keep her away from my family. She's a pain in the neck. I want her gone. Um, when she continued to give them trouble, Ballard decided that he was going to sell her. He was going to sell her to Texas. And she knew it was going to happen. So she writes Rice Ballard a letter. She's in a, a slave pen in Houston. And she writes a letter in which she begs him, begs him. She says, look, I don't know what I did. I'm sorry for whatever I did. I don't understand how how a man could sell his own children. Um, I know you have a family. surely you understand what it's like uh, to have children who are gonna be taken away from you. She threatens him. she says, look, I'm gonna, you know, I I, I won't say anything about our relationship, but I have the potential to expose Samuel Boyd. Um, she tries every tactic that she possibly can in this letter. Anything. She's absolutely desperate. Um, she promises to work. She says, look, if you bring me back, I'll work off every penny that you made um, in selling me. And Ballard, from all we can tell, never responds. Um, He doesn't really care. Um, Sam Boyd wanted her gone. Rice Ballard was a man who could get rid of her. And that was kind of the long and the short of it. Uh, But Virginia Boyd's story, I think, really stands in for the the stories of thousands and thousands of women uh, and families whose names we're never going to know. Uh, She stands in for thousands of people's voices who simply don't exist in the historical record. Um, I I, I consider myself very fortunate to have come across that letter. I'm not the first person to come across it, um, but I'm thankful that it survived. And um and I, I hope that to the extent I was able to work the stories of people like Virginia Boyd into the book, I was able to do them justice.
3: You did beautifully, sir. I mean, her 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 prose is so eloquent to this man just saying why would you want this Th- that any freeborn American would brand his character with such stigma as that? There was never a a time for grace for these men. There was never any remorse, was there?
7: No, never. People ask me that all the time. Did they did you ever get a sense that they Felt guilty, felt responsible, felt remorse, wished they'd done something else. Never. Not even a hint. Professor, it'd be
3: a pleasure to have you back anytime. I could talk about this book for days. Thank you so much for joining us. Again, the book is The Ledger and the Chain, How Domestic Slave Traders Shaped America by Professor Joshua D. Rothman. Uh, Sir, if it's ever possible, I'd love to have you back and go even deeper. You have written an incredible book, and I'm very grateful to you.
7: I'd be honored. Just let me know. Whenever whenever you have the time, I'll make the time. Thank Thank, you so much.
3: Thank you so much. Have a great evening. You too. We will be right back with your calls. We're at 866-997-4748.
1: Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at Squeezed.com.
3: I'm John Fugel saying this is SiriusXM Progress. We're at 866-997-GRIT. Before we get to your calls, I want to play play you something that Joe Biden said today because the media is not going to cover it. But today, Biden announced 32 new tech hubs across the U.S. and Puerto Rico aimed at developing a strong new aspect of American economy. He is already very optimistic about. I've said it before. I'll say it again. This guy, I've never seen a president in my lifetime get so much shit done. So much. He's he's like he's like a lesbian Scientologist. This guy gets stuff done, gets very little credit for it because, well, the media misses their Trump ratings. Here's Joe Biden with some good news today.
5: You know, it's leading to a manufacturing boom, attracting over $600 billion so far in private investment in American manufacturing and our clean energy future. For too long, we looked around the world to find, corporations looked around the world to find the cheapest employment and then imported the products they made, the foreign product. Now, we're creating American jobs and exporting American products. And that's good for everybody. These tech hubs will be transformational. And they're part of a long line of transformational investments we've made since I took office. And as a result, I truly believe this country is about to take off. Because for the first time in a long time, we're investing in America. And we're investing in American people. We're investing in our future. I can honestly say I've never been more optimistic about
3: America's future. Let's go to the phones and thank you guys for your patience. 866-997-GRIT. Hello to Marie in Atlanta. How are you, counselor?
8: Hello, John. Thanks for taking my call. Of course. Um, And it was great seeing you at the show. It was
3: so much fun. Thank you. I had no idea we'd be seeing you in the audience. Thank you so much for coming to the Big L.A. Show.
8: You did a great set. Did a great set.
3: (laughs) Thank
7: you.
8: So I wanted to talk about Austin Scott, who um, is among the nine GOP uh, House members who are apparently vying for (laughs) the House Speaker role.
3: Yeah, he Um, seems like one of the more innocent ones until you dig a little bit.
8: If you, yeah, exactly. He um, – and I've had some personal interactions with him. He had – and I'm not in his district, thank God – he has introduced twice um, legislation to uh, eliminate the Legal Services Corporation, um, to repeal the Legal Services Corporation Act. For those who don't know, Legal Services Corporation provides legal services to the poor, and they're, they were established by Congress. Um, And they have, essentially, you may have a different one locally. So we have Atlanta Legal Aid and the Georgia Legal Services Mm. um, offices, right? So you you may have them called other things where you live, but a lot of the funding for those offices, or not all all of it, um, is fed through Legal Services Corporation established by Congress. Okay. And he had twice submitted legislation. I mean, like, it was, excuse my language, his opening dick move when he first got to Congress in 2011. <laughs> wow. I was like,
3: really? This He's being hailed, you know, Marie, because him and Emma are the only ones who didn't vote to throw out the votes of the American people.
8: Yeah, but if you know him, that, that I think to some degree he was, some, he was safe in doing that. Um, sure. I think he was honing closely to uh, Governor Kemp. OK, uh, I think, that yeah, they have it makes a, sense a strong relationship. Makes sense. Um, Austin Scott is not a big name in Georgia politics. So it's not like, you know, we, we hear about Marjorie Taylor Greene all the time. Um, you know, we we heard about uh, back when there, we had Republican senators, we heard about them. Austin Scott's name doesn't get out there very much, um, but he represents uh, an area of South Central Georgia, uh, which is highly agricultural. Um, And hence the reason he wanted to repeal Legal Services Corporation Act, uh, because Legal Services Corporation represented some agricultural workers who had been discriminated against. Okay. And they actually won their lawsuit. And Austin Scott had it in for legal services ever since because he felt like they weren't being fair to those farmers. Um, Fast forward, by the way, there's a lawsuit right now. Um, And it's in South Georgia and it has to do with farm workers that were are alleging trafficking and abuse in a class action lawsuit. I don't know if that's being handled by Legal Services Corporation, but, you know, shock and surprise that that is now (laughs) something that's also coming to the to the surface about uh, his district. Um, He won he won the the loyalty of that agricultural community um, by having been very vocal about funding after the tornadoes remember we had a hurricane yeah of course that came through and just basically destroyed the pecan industry in south georgia wow Um, so you know he fought for money for his district which you know that's what a congressperson should do but he is just a jerk
3: (laughs) (laughs) you convinced me i won't be voting for him (laughs) oh Look, but we know, oh, I mean, yeah. Marie, like whoever they, whoever they pick is going to be awful. We know no matter what, whoever they pick is going to be awful. And whoever they I, pick will probably help the Democrats with fundraising, unless, ironically, the most effective speaker they've had was the most boring guy they could find, and he was the child molester. <laughs>
8: exactly. Well, uh, John, my my spidey sense is that they don't really want to pick somebody. I agree. Because as long as they don't pick someone... The, the government is essentially frozen. It cannot, it can't respond. No.
3: It can't be proactive. It can't be. But Marie, how are they going to blame? You- how are they going to blame this on Joe Biden? How will they blame it on Biden? You know, they, th- that's You're what they care about. Well, yeah, but how, but how will they blame it to Biden beyond the bubble? How's it going to help them with reelection?
7: You Unless they're in incredibly
3: safe red districts. But I mean, for the rest of the house, Democrats are going to beat them up with this. They're going to lose the house over this. Hakeem Jeffries will be speaker because of the Republican dysfunction.
8: It depends upon whether you have people who have you have constituents who are outside of the Fox and OAN, which I'm not even sure OAN exists anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, out of that conservative echo chamber.
3: Well, they, they do. You're not whole,
8: getting outside of that?
3: But the whole question is going to be turnout. With every election, if there's a large turnout, Democrats will do well. If it's a small turnout, the status quo always turns out to protect itself. So if no one shows up, then they'll be fine. But if a lot of people show up because they're mad about Roe v. Wade, and they're mad about Donald Trump, and they are and again, if Donald Trump is on the top of the ticket and he is a convicted felon by then, and Roe v. Wade is still a thing of the past, and we have memories of the Republican party shutting down Congress for months and having a government shutdown, people are going to be pissed, Marie. They're going to show up.
8: Absolutely, but let's let's do a yes and on that. Yes, if turnout is high, yes if people believe and if the things that in highly gerrymandered states and states that change election requirements if they don't get away with things like removing people off the rolls or challenging people's right to vote or all of the things that we're already seeing in Georgia, mm-hmm. it's already happening. Yeah. 138,000 have been thrown off the rolls by Brad Raffensperger. He's wow. nobody's hero, people. Wow. <laughs> you know, so it's yes if there's a great turnout and if the things that they've already set up to do to decrease that vote don't succeed.
3: Maria, it's good to hear good from you. Thank you so much. And it was so good to see you at the show the other night. Thanks for coming. You too. Thank you. Thank you. Good evening. 866-997-4748. Ken is calling from the great state of West Virginia. Ken, good evening. You're on SiriusXM. Hello.
2: Good evening. First time caller long time listener. Very honored. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm from calling from Political Jurassic Park. I'm a moderate Republican. Okay. And uh, uh, I just want—I went to a candidate meeting tonight, introduced a uh, Republican running for state Senate. And afterward, they had a Q&A, and lady so came up to me and goes, well, she so you introduced the guy, and, you know, I want to know about you. What do you think of Trump? I said, well, you want to be honest? She said, well, yeah, I expect that. I said, good. So I said, pardon my language. I said, I think he's a piece of shit. He goes, what? Yeah. Said, so, wh- all the stuff he did for our country? Like, well, what did he do? Hmm. And she kind of stumbled for a minute, and I kind of got this, you know, the guy that was from The Daily Show, remember, I was like, "Yeah." so what did he do? And she couldn't really, well, he yep. closed our border. Said, so, how did he close it? So did we still have fentanyl coming in? Yeah. Then how did he close it? Exactly. And then we got it to... Um,
3: All you got to do is ask questions, Ken. You you did yeah, it brilliantly. Yeah. Go on, please.
2: <laughs> so we you know about, well, what about Hunter Biden? And I said, okay, let's talk about Hunter Biden. So if it was bad for him, this is follow your train of thought. If it was bad for him getting money, why come you weren't so going off on Kushner getting $2 billion from his audience? She goes, what? I never heard that. I said, ma'am. Uh, what, what are you listening to? Oh, I, I listened to, 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 to Fox and, and Steve Bannon. I said, well, there's a problem. I said, you need to get out there and start listening to other mo- more moderate, or if not, listen to the other side. Yeah. I said, I am a Republican, all right? And I'm telling you, hey, yo, I'm not a team sport player. If you're going to be cheating and being corrupt, I'm going to call you on it.
3: Good for you, man. So, Good for you. Now, when you say you're a moderate Republican in West Virginia, where does that put you in relation to Joe Manchin? Ken, serious question.
2: Serious question. Um, I like Joe Manchin. Uh, See, <laughs> here in the state. The options that I have, unfortunately, are either Justice or Mooney. Yeah. Um, I'm not voting for Mooney. And uh, justice has his own issues.
3: That's what I say to my liberal friends all the time. Like, like, I know that liberals hate Joe Manchin and with very good reason. But like, he's he's as 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 good as Democrats are going to get in your state, I think.
2: Yes, because the way the state has turned uh, so red, um, you know, I think it's best for Joe Manchin to go independent. But um, I think if they're just Democrat, I'm not sure I'm not in Joe Manchin's head because he's always playing everyone to cuff. Yeah. Um, but it's it's a tough one. I mean, I, I'd rather have him in than justice. I, you know, it's the it's, I hate to say it this way, the devil you know. Right. Um, so, um, I do like some of Joe Manchin's policies. I mean, not I don't say policies. Some of his trains of thought, but I don't like the way he goes about it sometimes. Yeah. And it, it really put. <sighs> I'm a moderate, so it puts some of the more moderate thinking in regards to centrist Democrats out of the picture. Right. And I think it puts... It hampers our country as a whole by doing that.
3: I hear you. Well, I mean, it sounds like you were talking some sense into these people. I hope they didn't try and tar and feather you on your way out.
2: No, no. I thought it was kind of funny when you talked about Steve Bannon. I said, you know, he got pardoned by Donald Trump for for, for embezzling
3: money, right? For stealing from, from MAGA. From, for stealing from MAGA. Yeah.
2: And he was arrested on a Chinese billionaire's boat.
3: They don't know that, right? No. The news they right. consume does not tell them these things.
2: So, and, well... uh, Let me ask you a question. Yeah. And I tried to call Mooney's office about five times now. I got no answer. With all this still going on, why don't the the Republicans, and you probably know this answer, but I'm still debating it. Why don't they put somebody who's not into politics whatsoever in a speaker for two years? And then when the next election rolls through, then they could pick a speaker?
3: You're not the first to suggest it. I mean, we've heard names floated from Donald Trump to Liz Cheney to George W. Bush. Uh, to be Speaker for two years and and you know it would only be for one year I mean the elections in a year and one month so it wouldn't be the worst choice but it seems like that is not the direction these Republicans are going no one no. is putting forth any name like that with any serious. they were saying Donald Trump uh, but he would never do no, it someone pitched George W. Bush I would be delighted to have George W. Bush back in the public eye because I got a lot of things to say about him the world has forgotten about and I, I don't think Liz Cheney would ever do it because I, I don't think she'd ever have the votes anyway so I, no, I, I don't who, think... who would you like to see be the speaker? As a moderate Republican, who would you feel comfortable with?
2: tell you the truth, I'll put my name in the hat.
3: Right on. Okay, but but not, and I'm sure you're a wonderful fella. but that, that they would elect. Who would you like to see be the speaker of, uh, of this house for the next year?
2: Oh, that's a tough one. Um, yeah. Ugh. Apparently, yeah, it's very hard for Republicans oh, my, to oh figure my, this one yeah, out. Oh, my God. All the people on the right are all wackos yeah. and don't think the election was legal. So who do I have? Now, I'm not going to choose a Democrat. So
3: Yeah, there we go. <laughs> uh <laughs> welcome to your next government shutdown. Ken, it's a pleasure oh, to I hear was. from you, man. Thank you very Thank much. You. Hey, yeah, you're, you're good. And look, we we got along nicely. You should call him more often.
2: Oh, we'll do. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Uh, uh-huh.
3: bye-bye. We're at 866-997-4748. Here's what happens now. I got to take a very quick break. When I come back, I'm going to be with the fabulous Rhonda Handsome, and we're going to take your calls again. We're at 866-997-GRID. If you're on hold, don't go away. We will be right back. Monday night on this show means it's time for Tall, Dark, and Handsome Mondays. Rhonda Handsome is a stand-up comedian, writer, director, actor. She's open for Anita Baker and Diana Ross and Aretha Franklin. She's had a lot of great solo shows. You can catch her on Politipod, available on SoundCloud. Miss Rhonda, welcome back to SiriusXM.
0: I'm black, y'all.
3: Thank God. Welcome to the I'm <laughs> black, y'all report. How are you, Miss Hansom?
0: I am great, John. I had the pleasure of being treated to a, a Broadway musical this weekend. I saw Gutenberg, the musical. Oh, and how is it? It's hilarious. It, it's absolutely hilarious. And uh, I was never a big uh, fan of of Josh. What is it, Josh Gad? Yeah. Uh, and but he was great. He was absolutely great on stage and Andrew Reynolds. I mean, it's just the two of them up there. Uh, with uh, uh, just being funny and, and carrying on. And then there's a great twist at the end. So uh, I'm a happy camper for having been treated to uh, to, to that on Broadway.
3: I just saw the, the revival or the new, rather, the new musical of Some Like It Hot. Oh, my God. I was like, I went into it thinking they really destroyed the screenplay. They really changed. The, wow. It's in so many ways better than the Billy Wilder film. I mean, really? I, mi- I missed Marilyn Monroe, but I did not miss Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis by the end. It is what they do with race and racism and what they do with sexuality and gender in this thing. It is crazy. And it's it's something that'll just scare all the right people. And the music's pretty great, too. I really. So we're both going to musicals unexpectedly.
0: I'm glad to hear that review. I'm gonna try to get to see
3: that. Yeah, I'd love to get your thoughts on it. I kept hearing it. Keith Price was telling me to see it for months and months and I finally got to and I was like, whoa, this is actually great. Cause you know, they, they adapt movies into musicals and there's like, you know, there's one good song and then 20 tracks of filler. This thing is really just amazing.
0: And I'm I'm glad it's coming back. Broadway's coming back. I
3: I I hope so. And I'm glad you're coming back, Rhonda. It's been a really hard week, you know. With I I opened the other night saying I know it's been a it's been a great month for topical comedy, hasn't it? But between this destructive awful war in the Middle East, and between the the government shutting down forever, and Donald Trump's never ending criminality, and every time Joe Biden does something good, the media is in a race to ignore it. It just has been a, a really discouraging time. And I think I think we need to be funny and irreverent more than ever
0: well yeah we do but you, you know it's a hard week but not for the arms manufacturers i think they're they're having a real buffalo bottom line this this week i think they're doing very well with yep. the uh, machines so they they are uh, in in the black <laughs>
3: oh god help us you're totally right you're totally right so miss hansen we have a lot of callers you want to try and get to as many as we can
0: as many as we can, John. Let's do it.
3: Laura's on the line from L.A. Hey, Laura, thanks for calling. You're on Sirius XM with Rhonda and me. What's up?
9: Hi. Oh, well, first on your guest about the slavery, um, I have friends that say, oh, that was my ancestors that did um, a different generation. Well, I'm speaking from this generation in the current day. Uh, where's the check for reparations? I'll sign it. Thank whatever. you. Whatever. Yeah. Because what uh, I have a progressive... Friend that owns a business, and when I talk about you know seeing that movie, what was it, Twelve Days a Slave or Twelve, 12 Years, Years a, Slave. a Slave? Yeah, yeah. Right, and she goes, Yeah, but why are we supposed to be guilty? It was what our other generations did. I said, Yeah, but you're profiting off of what your great great grandfather well, I, criminalized. I, but
3: I, I don't, I don't think we get there by by telling white people today they should feel guilty about it. I think we get there by making sure that white people today don't get to be in denial about it. You know what I mean? There's a difference. I'm not blaming anyone for anything that their ancestors did 100, 200 years ago. But I will blame people who want to close their eyes to the reality. I'll blame the Ron DeSantis and the Republican Party that wants to get rid of critical race theory and keep young people from learning the truth about the history. That's where the modern day evil is to me. But I I just really hope that I get to be alive when America finally, finally does something uh, to try to correct the historical record and try to make amends to the descendants of slaves and the descendants of first nations people who were slaughtered here. I I think that and for me, you can't have reparations for one without the other. You've got to have reparations for everyone who's a descendant of slavery and everyone who's, heritage was ethnically cleansed by the settlers i think they're, they they both are essential and i i dream of seeing that kind of justice where we can give this kind of gift and the nation humbly asks for forgiveness from the descendants of the people who were most abused
9: well
0: we i, I, happen- want, I want to thank the, the the caller for for being uh, uh taking the initiative in that kind of conversation though i i you're do you're right. Want to do that, because I think a lot of people don't realize that most of the insurance companies and a lot of the major corporations and banks that are are uh, flourishing today have their basis in slavery.
3: Yep, that's and, right.
9: Yeah, it's still happening. So yeah, repairs must be done. This country so, was built on heard it? Heard Sarah Vowell, she yes. has uh, the wordy shipmates and uh, assassination vacation uh-huh. books. Uh-huh, like uh history with the sense of humor, yeah, and so that's what it reminded me of the wordy shipmates were about how horrible the British companies were when they brought white uh like uh, white trash men from England came over here to the colonies, and then they started to thinking, well we're, we're white trash who else can we uh, feel superior to and then i are like what, what what's this thing about slaves that we heard some other you know we could get these colonists in the west indies to do it so, yeah so that's what it reminded me of uh so those are like uh, a companion book after you read your guest book then you could also read sarah vowell's book Thank oh and i loved you saturday night oh um, you the saw dr. it dr seuss book yeah. yes of course i did oh yes. they
3: made me do that dr seuss book i tried to get out of it they made me do it but that was a great crowd we made it work
9: How long did it take you to come up with all those rhymes?
3: I was on vacation, and I was getting up uh, at 6 a.m. every day in the West Coast, and I would get up at 6 a.m., I would go sit outside on the porch, and I would uh, write that poem until my my wife and kid woke up, and about three days, and then I rewrote it a few times, and we made a video of it. The video is just out now. They waited until after the the show was over to release the, the video of it, but you can see that all. It's on YouTube, and I'll be sharing it all week long.
9: Oh, yeah. That, I really appreciate it. A lot of it was new material, that Hal Sparks did, because I watch you guys or, or listen to you guys almost every day. So I'm like, oh, it's going to be rehash stuff. And it wasn't. It oh, was no. all uh, brand new stuff. So I really appreciate it. And the expert panel, it's like going to some master class. Mm. So that was really cool.
3: OK. So well, thank you so much. Thank you, Laura. It's a pleasure to hear from you. Thank you. Let me go, if I may, to Sean and Callie. Sean, you're on with Rhonda Handsome.
5: Oh, hey, Rhonda. I hey, just love you so much. Yes, and um, we have all this stuff to talk about, but John, real quick, uh, I'm doing everything I can to be with you guys in, in January 20th, right, in in the Bay Area, Herps, uh, you know, um, anyway.
3: Right on, uh, thank for you.
5: For your, your tour thing, because, you know, look, and by the way, what they were just talking about, reparations. I mean, do we really need to, this is where we are in our country's history. We need to not only talk about it, we need to really embrace it. And this is what makes so many of the Republicans mad because they think someone else is getting something for free. Exactly. They think someone else is getting something for free. Isn't that the most fucked up thing you ever heard in your life?
3: Yeah, but they always feel that way. They always feel that way.
5: They got everything for free. They got everything for fucking free. Yeah. And as a white guy, I'm like, fuck that. I want to make sure that you have equity in my country, our country, our country. Because if you don't have equity in our country, then what's your motivation to make it better
3: beautiful bet. Rhonda, do you want to comment I, on that yeah. I, 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 well
0: i i really love uh the, the caller's um point of view uh it, it, it's it's absolutely absolutely necessary it, it, it's it is absolutely necessary and the, the thing about it uh we have been one of the things i tweeted today that we black People, the foundational Black Americans, descendants of slaves. There's no need for us to be the moral compass of of, of this country anymore. We're not the mammy. We're not the mule anymore. Hmm. We don't. We Hello. don't need hymns and uh, and holidays or statues. We do need the recognition and the reality of cash reparations.
3: Boom. Yeah, I agree.
0: One hundred
5: percent. And I'll tell you what, we'll keep fighting for it. And and I want to tell everyone out there, keep fighting for it. Everything you do is worth it. Don't be complacent. And, and, yes, my cynicism, I'm battling right now with my cynicism, like, regarding war and all that stuff. Tell me. But that, well, I mean, I'm saying, you know, I think that we keep going down the same road. We keep doing the same things that aren't working as opposed to giving people opportunity. And opportunity by the way, for especially when we're talking about, uh, you know, black folks, you know, they've already earned their opportunity. And the yeah. sad fact is throughout the world, Palestinians, everything else, they have earned their opportunity, too. But the sad thing is, is that we can't have that conversation because it's not appropriate. And, and, and that drives me nuts. But um, this is where we're at. And we never stop fighting. We never stop trying to help people that need the help. That's the key. And if we never stop doing that, the other side will lose. They'll right on, lose. Sean. But we got to vote, brother.
3: Thank you so much, man. Thank you for the call. Let me go to uh, Brian in Oregon. I want to get to as many people as I can, Rhonda. Uh, hey, Brian, Rhonda, you, you're on with Rhonda. Go ahead. Voice. What?
4: Oh, it's good to hear a little and Rhonda's voice in a, in a cheery. Uh, she's got a cheery voice tonight which is nice. Uh, <laughs> how could uh, I, I not I, be? with that, John Fugle saying and the riffraff
0: of the night? How could I not
4: be cheery? <laughs> yeah, fantastic. John, I'm thinking, where am I going to start? Uh, well, the, all the callers have been great, and the story, the book was just, the, your author was amazing. Yeah, he uh, was. And, um, just a uh, footnote on the reparations. Marion Williamson was the only presidential candidate that had the uh, formula for reparations of a uh, mule and 40 acres and bring that forward
3: to yes. today's time. She's talking about it. It's true. She's the only one who's talking about it.
4: And so, anyways, that's that. And my, um, on the war in the Middle East, I'm thinking I've been lobbying Schumer's office, well, once I called, and Senator uh, Merkley, Merkley's office, um, I think there should be a bipartisan uh, group of sinners to go through the Sinai to the Gaza border and witness uh, what's going on from that end inside of the conflict before they decide to send in a shitload more of lethal I
3: mean, they're, they're, they're going to do it anyway, Brian, and it's going to make things worse for Israel in the long run. I mean, Rhonda, I've been saying this for a while now. Israel cannot revenge themselves into peace if they 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 will slaughter the the, I mean we know it's going to happen the Mossad's going to go in there they're going to slaughter every member of of the Hamas and then what then the people of Palestine will decide oh well I guess we'll appreciate this occupation and we'll appreciate living in an open-air prison like until Palestine has independence and freedom and control of their own borders and is made to acknowledge Israel's right to exist I don't think you're going to see anything approaching peace. You're just going to see more yeah. of this bloodshed going back and forth, back and forth. And this is Netanyahu's failure as much as this is Hamas's Nazi terrorism.
4: Oh, yeah. Well, and also I wonder how much of it is Netanyahu's fascination of trying to fasc- fasc- fascify or <laughs> fascificate <laughs> Israel.
3: I mean, oh. no, I think it's different. I think I think he's been doing he's been making Israel a fascist trying to fascistize Israel to protect his own ass, you know, because he's so corrupt. He's trying to do away with the Supreme Court in Israel to protect himself. And now he's trying yeah. to exploit this horrible destruction. This is like mind boggling uh, savagery. This this that was committed on these people. And he's going to use that to try to save himself and 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 stay in power. And I don't think it's going to get away with it. This fraud gangster thug douchebag has been spending 20 years, Rhonda, saying only I can keep you safe. Only you got to keep me because i'll keep you safe and that was a big load of bullshit he propped up hamas in 2019 he's on tape telling his party yeah. if you want to avoid ever having a two-state solution keep hamas in power because hamas in power having the bad guys keeps me in power and we see where that led
4: yeah well, just you saying that with uh, him saying i'm the only one that can keep you safe doesn't that remind you of somebody named donald john
3: exactly Trump? right
4: <laughs>
3: it, Well, Trump. Yeah. only i can defeat isis and i'm like well i'll, yeah. I'll drop Bobby you me. off in mosul and I see can- how that plays out man
4: Oh, God.
0: But he I mean, was but talking I, about this cool sherbet, sweet ISIS.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
4: well, plus I think Hamas have been infiltrated by ISIS I, I, is what I think with their Brutality, it's exactly like ISIS.
3: It's exactly like ISIS. They are following the ISIS playbook, which is just chaos and murder and slaughter, and let's see how we come out when the dust clears. And it's yeah. what it's what bin Laden did, too. And it's, it's stupid. It shows that they're not Muslims. They don't give a shit what their yeah. holy book tells them. They just—and look, they're hurting the Palestinian cause, making the whole world— despise you, does not help the good people of Palestine who deserve a better deal. And Netanyahu, responding the way he does, does not make the people of Israel safer, which is what they deserve as well.
4: Yeah. And my, just, my thought on the Senator, I think it's, well, I think these people need to be confronted uh, with the reality, no matter what, Yeah. to know what the hell they're voting for.
3: You're right, man. You're right.
4: That's my thought. But I, anyways, that's <laughs> that's it. For the, thank God you and Thea kept talking about that album.
3: What, the Rolling Stones? Oh, no, Lamar, Kendrick Lamar. Kendrick Lamar. Oh, the it's great.
4: jumped onto the shelf and knocked the phone onto the ground. Oh. And I'm crawling around on <laughs> the floor in the chicken house trying to find the damn phone. Wow. And I, I think I found it by the time you were uh, touting the last Rolling Stone album you talked about.
3: Brian, I guess we can blame Kendrick Lamar for shaking up the chicken house.
4: <laughs> That's just what it was. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Brian, thank you so much. You made thank my day with that. All right. Cheerio. Thank you. Rhonda, today's the uh, the 11-year anniversary of uh, Kendrick Lamar's second album coming out, Good Kid, Mad City. So we were playing some of that before.
0: Oh, I'm sorry. I missed
3: that. Well, and I can't believe it. I, I'm still not sure I do. But I mean, I've seen it in print. I just still can't believe it's 11 years since that record came out.
0: The time is flying. The <laughs> tempest...
3: It. <laughs> Let me go to uh, Charles. We're getting we're getting through calls, Miss Handsome. I
0: love it. I love I love your people, John. They are just just tremendous. You
3: are so sweet, Charles in Miami. Thank you so much for waiting on hold. You're on with Rhonda.
6: How you doing, Rhonda? Hey, nice to hear your voice again. Um, I'm calling, um, and I've yeah, I've heard this saying recently, like, how you know you can have, I like, guess two things. How, how does they say? What's Could that? Two things at once or two uh i forgot what to say. saying okay but basically i'm talking about what with, with, um what with the israelis tell me it's unfortunate what's happened i mean it's, it's what hamas has done is absolutely deplorable yeah but at the same time those people need i, I feel like they need um you know they need a state solution where they're going to have their own pathway as well you know yeah to, uh, to, to self-determination and as far as this country goes, there won't be any reparations, especially in a climate like you have today. But what I still think, I still believe is if you know, we made it possible. Everyone can get universal health care mm. and, you know, and, um, to be honest with you, I just feel like my community, we don't need much. We're all, um, you know, hardworking, um, some of us very good at making something out of nothing. And I just feel like, you know. Uh, as long as you include everyone in it, we will still flourish. We, you know, we will still be able to take advantage of it. And of course, when you have, when you're not thinking about, you know, how I'm going to pay my bills with health care or whatever else that the government is helping you with, then guess what? You can move on to something else. Your mind, you, you know what I'm saying? You, you, I do. You can stop worrying about things. And, 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 and I, I just feel like that, that's how we should approach this. But the reason I'm calling today I'm very scared. I'm very worried. and I'll tell you why. Why? Um, What these Republicans trying to start now saying that they want to give the Speaker pro tem powers. Remember, like I said a couple weeks ago, you know, even the same Republican Party was saying, no, they're not into that. They didn't want that to happen because. That was set
3: a brand new precedent. Right. You, know? you following this, Saranda they got this little guy, this guy, Patrick McHenry, um, he, who's a, a, a magical elf they found in the forest, who uh, is, wears a bow tie and um, wears uh, Ron DeSantis heels. And he's the speaker pro temp. You know, he's just the temp taking over. Uh, and now they're saying, well, why don't we just give him more powers? I, I mean, to me, Charles, why not just vote for him to be your speaker? I mean, what's wrong with that? Just vote to make this guy the speaker.
6: Exactly. But my fear is this. Now we have a democratic leadership and a Republican mm-hmm. leadership. And that's all we're accustomed to having. You um give the speaker put him any bit of power, that's giving him precedent. And let's say you have the blue dog caucus or whatever they call themselves. Yeah. And you have the seditious caucus. You, and they get together. Guess what? They can usurp the, you know, the the, the, the power of either the Democratic leadership or the Republican uh, leadership. Yeah, and we may get something that we didn't even vote for. Well, that's
3: Which, a, that, that know, tends to, to happen in this country.
6: Donald Trump. Okay. Yeah,
3: that tends to happen in this country. We get a lot of but stuff it, we didn't vote it, for. You
6: know, yeah, but guess what? You could have a Matt Gates. You could have a um Jim Jordan. Yeah. You know, being the Speaker Pro Tem,
3: Uh they it, take,
6: you know you know, taking over the house. I hear you. So I, 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 I get worried about stuff like that, little things like that, but it can, it can really mess up the balance of power. So what I'm trying to say is don't let the Republicans, Republicans <laughs> get away with it. Right on. Don't give the Speaker pro tem any bit, any, any other power than he, you know, than he has already, which is nothing. I guess he just calls the role, right?
3: I mean, that's that's supposed to be it. It's not like he's going to be, you know, doing much more because the government can't do anything. They're saying, given the special power so the government can start to do oh. stuff. I'm like, you changed the rules last January that anybody could vote him out. Now you're changing the rules again to give the temp too much power. Just pick a damn guy and run with it. Rhonda, are you sick of this? I mean,
0: it's uh, three I weeks I now. I, I heard them floating someone. Was it Tom Emmett or? Tom Emmer. Emmer. Tom Emmer. Emmer. Yeah. And uh, I, I just feel like they're taking turns trying to shoot themselves in the
3: foot. Exactly.
0: I, I don't understand it at all, John. It, it's, it's like we, we want, we're, we're proud. We want to put on a proud, spectacular display of
6: dysfunction.
3: They really seem to not know what they're doing, Charles. Don't you agree? Like, I mean, they just look like a bunch of mooks. Let me
6: see something. Let me tell you how crazy this looks like. For them for Matt Gates to have even um started this whole process and and now we find out that they didn't even have a succession and plan. You know, plan, you know, as as far as someone really taking over. This is how dangerous these people are and they really don't give a damn. But I still I'm asking somebody, please clarify with me before I go to bed. There's Democrats. We have a democratic leadership and we you know, we're we bad on messaging. But can't we just have a couple of um, you know town hall meetings?
1: Yeah, can't we at least ex-
6: have people expressing how they are destroying our country and almost yep. putting our economy and everything else in danger? Because if trust me, if it was the other way around, it wouldn't be death panels. It'll be like you know they're burning our country to the ground. They don't know what they're doing, and da da and, and it would be on. This corporate meeting—it'll be on the head, uh,
3: on the six o'clock news yeah. every night. Well, I will—I will, I will tell you—in about two months, it's going to be twenty twenty-four, and you'll start to get a lot of town hall meetings then. But I think you—you you have the right idea, exactly, Charles. We got to go. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Thea. Uh, what a great show we had tonight. We'll be back again for some more tomorrow. This is SiriusXM Progress. Peace.